Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master so you can beat the competition. There are four levels towards product mastery, which spell beat, build your base, earn professional certification, apply deep dives, and transform the organization. That fourth level, transform the organization, is the topic of this episode. At this level, product managers go from building better products to building a better organization. And someone who has helped several organizations be better, specifically those in healthcare, is Dr. Gene Bate. Gene is a medical doctor who now works with organizations as a healthcare designer, educator, artist, and creative director. He has a simple mission, to put human needs and well-being at the center of all that we do. We all want better organizations to work in, and product managers can make that happen more than many others can. Listen and find out how. And if you want the show notes for this episode with a summary of the key topics discussed with Gene, just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 136. Gene, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Uh, Chad, it's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. I appreciate the opportunity to connect. And we're talking a little bit about a different topic today, but one that's exceptionally relevant to product managers. And that's building on this idea that product managers have this really unique perspective in organization. Everyday innovators, I want you to recognize that, that product managers were typically the only ones that work closely with the customers. And also, you know, we certainly we understand their needs and, and what problems they're facing. But at the same time, we work really closely with all the functions in the organization, whether, you know, this varies by organization, but maybe research and development, engineering development, manufacturing, professional services, marketing, sales, you know, and the like. Not too many other people, and in a lot of organizations, no one really, works with all those different kinds of functions. And that gives us a, a systems perspective of the organization, where everyone else kind of just sees it as its different segments. And it's a very unique perspective to have, and we're kind of we're special in that way. At the same time, the other unique thing about product managers is as we're building our careers, because we're meeting all those people, we can really grow our influence significantly across the organization. So, as I've talked with product managers about this and about some of their natural career progression here, they have really moved into senior leadership roles because of this uniqueness. They they see the the, the company as a as a system, and they have much greater influence. The thing I wanted to ask you about, Gene, was as we're trying to I'll, I'll use the phrase transform the organization for higher performance. There's lots of ways we can think about this, but really changing an organization to go from one level of performance to a much higher level uh, of performance. It seems to me that product managers are uniquely suited to make that happen just because of the system perspective and their influence. So let's start there. That kind of sets the stage for listeners for what we're going to be talking about. And you have lots of experience in this uh, in the healthcare area, but it certainly applies to other organizations. So, so what do you think about that? Well, Chad, that's a very, very good question um, and, and very insightful observations. One of the things that I've noticed is is that uh, people in the middle of the organization trying to change the organization many times will bump up and uh, to the other constituencies and sort of the immune system of the organization sort of squashes that transformational effort. 
the nice thing about the position of a product manager where you've got these essential ingredients of a system thinker to actually see the holistic uh, approach and see all of the interplays that are acting out in terms of the organization. You also have in that system view a sense of culture, mm-hmm. of whether or not it's a control culture, or whether or not it's an innovative culture. And that really plays to the strength of the third part, which is the relationships. The fact that uh, what we're really all about is this idea of human beings connected with other human beings to accomplish things, to, to produce product and goods and services. So the idea of being able to see systemically, understand the unwritten uh, and often unexpressed norms and cultural routines, and to be able to navigate through that in a way through these relationships, positions that individual for a really a different perspective on organizational transformation. And I think the, the whole idea about organizations is that they are, even though they're entities and they're, they're, there's all these things we talk about, these are human beings collectively coming together for a purpose. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that essential understanding of the human connectivity in the organization gives a very different and a very powerful perspective. Thinking back of an early experience I had, I, I was not a part of the executive team. That was all the VPs in the organization. But I participated in the executive team meetings because of my role was one of these roles that was crossing all the organizations. And there were uh, more than once where the CEO would discuss a strategic objective and all the VPs would agree to support this objective. And then the next day, I would, in my interactions with e- each of the functions, hear how they were going to deliver on that and point out even at times that, well, if you do what you say you're going to do, that's going to really hamper what the VP of engineering is trying to get done. And because most organizations are treated as individual kind of silos, the, these separate functions. Well, and, and it, it can't be any more true than in healthcare. Hmm. You know, you, you're trained in a, in a school, you're a profession, you're responsible to make decisions, give orders, you're in the physician silo. You're in the nursing silo. You're in the respiratory therapy silo. You're mm-hmm. in the administration silo. And the problem is, is that with our customers in terms of patients, they get lost in between all that and all the handoffs, the, the coordination, the trust, the respect that's needed among the team members is not there. And so we end up getting what we already got. We got a system that doesn't work. Right. And that's, I think that's a great example of what you're talking about. And as product managers, we are still consumers of healthcare. And if you have bumped up against that, it can be a frustrating experience because those handoffs, they, they take away the customer experience. And we want businesses that create a better customer experience and better customer value. And in your work transforming organizations, you talk about this uh, term positive business and that we're striving to create a positive business. Tell us what that is. What does a positive business look like? What are the elements? Well, um, so the whole idea of a positive business um, has uh, much of the research and literature has come out of the University of Michigan at the Ross School. Um, And it's a fundamental idea that an organization that is human-centered, customer and outcome-focused, but one that chooses affirmative business practices, that has beneficial meaning and purpose for the workforce and the customers. So the whole idea is, is that you're making practical decisions that lead to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. So the evolution of the positive psychology 
that's come about in the last 20 years or so, where we actually begin to understand the role of emotion, positive emotion in creating the culture and creating the customer experience and creating the design of the product has actually been formulated into a holistic approach that the business then is based on positivity. And it's interesting, when you look at the data, the outcomes, profitability, and the performance will often exceed expectations. And usually the organization has a good as its aim, a, a, a general good, and it's involved in improving the community and the environment. It's not that you're not opposed to maximizing wealth or increasing shareholder wealth. What you're saying is, is that those are part of the picture. The bigger picture is to actually help human beings thrive, flourish. And in the process of doing that, the businesses actually succeed. That sounds a little counterintuitive in our culture, uh, particularly when you look at decisions that are made on short-term economic gains and stock prices and these kind of things. But in fact, when you look in a, in a systemic way, just as we've been talking about over a long period of time, you build a different relationship with the individuals of the workforce and with the customers, and they build a sense of trust, and they grow their businesses, and they thrive. Sometimes there's this phrase, you know, happy employees make happy customers. And in a sense, I think that's what we're talking about in this context. And that uh, triple bottom line perspective, you said improving the community and the environment also. We used to characterize the triple bottom line in the way I like it, the, the, th the 3P model, because it's easy for me to remember, of profit, people, and planet. And now we typically think of it in terms of economics of so the company, the society, the people part, how are we impacting that community and society in general, and then the environmental responsibility. And looking at, you know, indeed delivering on all three dimensions actually has a lot of benefits to everyone involved and helps profit also. Well, of course. And now there's this movement to create what's called B Corps. And I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that. It's actually a corporate. It's about 25 of the states and a lot internationally. And it's actually in your bylaws of the corporation, you do good first, and then you, you maximize profit. And what that means is, is that if the company was to be sold, it doesn't have to go to the highest bidder. It goes to the one that's right. So it's a very different philosophy of basically putting a human-centered approach in the way we organize and deliver goods and services. Mm -hmm. My family enjoys taking factory tours, and I have two kids, and we just like seeing how things are made, right? So I guess we're makers at heart. And a couple that stood out to contrast, I recently took a tour of Toyota in Kentucky where they build the Camry and the Avalon and one of the Lexus uh, versions of the Avalon. And contrast to that with a few years ago, we took a tour of Winnebago, which when it comes to RV manufacturers, Winnebago does a really good job. And as far as I know, they're the only ones that actually use a production line like a automotive manufacturer where, where the chassis is moving you know, down you know, on a conveyor system and people work on it in stations, not unlike Toyota. What struck me so much was the faces of the people at Winnebago. You know, they were... I would I would say may someone can call me that works there and tell me it's different, but it looked to me like they were faces that say, I'm here to clock in, do my work, and clock out. But the culture was not really excited about what they're actually working on. Contrast that to Toyota, 
as we went through the lines, everyone had smiles on their faces. They were engaged. They, they were taking time to wave at us as the tourists, you know, seeing what they do. And I talked to the our tour guide later, and she'd been doing this work for about three months at that point. And she came from outside the company. And I asked about that. She said, they're always that way. Even when we don't take tours back, they always seem to be happy about what they're doing. And it just was this aspect of a happy customer, having a happy employee, indeed, it makes that happy customer. And having happy employees are good things. Yeah, exactly right. And the the thing that was is very impressive is is that when we think about leadership and we think about giving direction and we think about uh, these typical traditional leadership qualities, it, it turns out that if you invest in that individual and you nurture them and really meet them and have an empathetic understanding of who they are and what they're trying to accomplish and really give them the, the understanding and the support, it's amazing what human beings will do. Mm-hmm. You just have to get out their way. So in creating these positive businesses and transforming organizations into that positive business businesses, you use two tools to help. You call it design thinking and positive change leadership. And many product managers were already familiar with design thinking for creating products. And if you watch what IDEO or someone else is doing where design thinking is really the home of, they've taken that to transforming organizations also. In the work that you do, can you take us through how you apply design thinking organizational improvement, and then we'll go down the track and talk about uh, positive change next. But where does design thinking fit into your work? When you think about healthcare as an industry, I think design thinking is just now really beginning to be understood. In a traditional uh, organization where there's a fair amount of control and you think about improvement, there's a natural tendency to reduce variation and to run PDCA cycles and to use the lean tools to reduce variation and waste and improve profitability and hopefully throughput and somewhere along the line, improving the customer satisfaction. So from a perspective of the healthcare industry, we have four areas that are basically the products of the way we are designed. So if we think we're going to have a different health industry without redesigning it, it's that old famous quote that, you know, uh, you're expecting different results (laughs) with the same processes and that's not going to happen. So the four areas that we like to think of as design areas, design opportunities, is one obviously is the experience of the patient, of the customer, and the access to care. The second is the outcomes, how well people are feeling, doing, the level of wealth health and wellness uh, that they have. The third is obviously cost. And we know that with the aging demographics and the the, uh, increasing technology, costs are not sustainable and they have to be addressed. And finally, we've got a burnout and disengaged workforce. I was talking to a CEO who's telling me about physician suicides um, because the system has never been designed correctly. So if you think about that and then you begin to say, well, how can I design it? Part of the design process has to work at three levels. We have to work it at the level of the individual. They need to begin to understand the tools. They need to begin to understand how to begin empathetically engaging. We need to work at the team levels. We need to create these radical collaborations across the silos that we talked about earlier with patients, with community, with uh, uh, payers. And then the third part is we need to build that organizational learning cycle you know, the work that you've heard from Senge and Onaka 
to really rapidly prototype. So the organization has to become learning and, and responsive to these uh, successful prototypes. That, in essence, you know, really does reflect a lot of the design methodology. So there's a great example that when you talk with these experts, people who are domain-specific experts, they have the answers because they've spent a lot of time, they went through a lot of uh, education training, they've looked at what other people are doing. It's kind of like the electric, I mean, yeah, the, the uh, self-driving car. So these brilliant people build this technology, and then we say, here, don't you want it? Well, what I like about design thinking is you reverse that, and instead of trying to come up with the solution, you try and empathetically engage in the patient, in the workflow, in the workforce, and really try to understand where they are, build that level of engagement, bring it into these uh, generative conversations, these safe, respectful teams that are able then to actually be creative and prototype solutions. Uh Healthcare hasn't really worked like that because we've got lots of rules and regulations. We have lots of experts who are, you know, I went to neurosurgery at wherever and I've done this work for so many years and I'm the expert. It turns out that we haven't listened to the voice of the customer and we haven't empathetically engaged with the workforce. So we've been doing this kind of design work with healthcare organizations. And what's really amazing is, is that when you give them the skills to look at it different, to look at their self-authenticity and their engagement empathetically and the meaning of their work, and then you begin to give them the tools that they can collaborate and then innovate you see the culture change and you see the output of the clinical services change. I had one clinic we work with and the patient says, I don't get it. Everybody here is happy. I've never been to a healthcare organization where people are smiling and happy. So I think it's, it's the same general principles in this human centered business that have been underappreciated and underdeployed. And that goes to our four thing, Right. That fourth aim of creating this human flourishing investment in human capital that um, creates this positive business. That's certainly an organization that I would care to work for more than others, right? And so you're creating a a vision that is really unifying to focus on, well, we care about the experience of our customer. We care about their actual outcomes. Are we Are we adding value to them or not in that experience? We care about the cost involved, uh, and in healthcare, that's certainly a big issue. It is for other products too. And then, when it comes to how we're delivering that value, are is the workflows are, are the employees involved engaged and excited about being part of that value delivery and the creation and the delivery or not? So that creates a pretty unifying vision to to get behind. You know the, the core elements of that. And then, when you talk about designing for individuals, teams, and organizations, I. I would think that's how you actually implement change at each one of those levels, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that, I think, is an important point, Chad. I think a lot of people think, I'm going to put this person in charge. We have a lot of burnout physicians, so they're going to hire a physician in charge of burnout. Right? Uh-huh. So, so I think the idea that we want to be engaged with the people. We want to create the containers for conversation in the teams, and we want to create an organizational learning spiral right. so that the organization then 
grows and generatively makes that happen. I think those are the, the fact that we've broke. This is why it's so nice to talk to people who are systemic thinkers, because we've broken that apart. We think we can solve each little piece, but we, it's the whole issue that we want to address. And product managers are, again, uniquely prepared to think more as a, from that system perspective. And I chuckled a bit when you talked about hiring the person in charge of burnout, right? Because that's the, the silo approach. You know, that, that's not solving the system problem. That's just putting someone else in charge of a symptom. And we're not really getting to the underlying issue that's going on. And Chad, even if that person spent time with you in your burnout state and helped give you a little resilience, kind of pushed you back and got you going again, you'd go right back into the same environment. It's the same system, system. <laughs> right? Exactly. So, so I have this word picture in my head. Well, I should say I'll express this picture in my head of words of, you know, maybe this person is going to help me get post-it notes all over my mirror in the morning of encouraging things I can say to myself to help me feel better about going into that environment. But the environment's not changing. Exactly. We haven't changed the system. So when it comes to design thinking, for listeners, if you go back to episode 019, so that's the everydayinnovator.com slash 019, we went through design thinking in detail. I like having ways to help me remember things. So design thinking I use every day I prototype and test because I can remember that a little bit better than the steps, right? And so, so the every day I prototype and test Every is we use empathy to really understand the customer and and what's going on with their expression of the problem and how they feel about that, right? We're trying to get connected through empathy. Every day, day is defined. We're getting our hands around the, the problem itself. And then I is for ideate. We're trying to start, <clears throat> excuse me, we're trying to start identifying how we can solve that problem. And that leads us to prototyping, which happens to be actual prototyping in my little sentence uh, mnemonic system here. We prototype solutions, and then we test those solutions, then we just iterate on that, right? So every day I prototype and test. And you were really talking about th that, you know, helping us emphasize that beginning point and creating the positive business of we got to begin with the empathize. How, how, do, how do we show empathy and really understand what how people are feeling, both the customer and the people delivering the solution to the customers. Yeah, exactly right. And, and if you want, I can give a quick little example of, of a clinic that had a lot of cultural dysfunction. They were smashed together, and, and it was a clinic serving underserved uh, population in the Midwest. And we began working with them in this exact thing that you're talking about. What was really interesting is, is that you didn't need to come in and say you needed to do this lean value stream map or, or this sort of technology by just giving them the opportunity to walk in each other's shoes mm -hmm. and to listen to the patient. They self-organized into pods and the pods actually had daily huddles. And so they actually every morning got together and determined who was coming in as, as the, the patients, the customers what their needs were, what their time commitments were, and then they would flex and take additional walk-ins in the process. And it turned out that the the typical silos of jobs in healthcare, I mean, you know, doctors write orders, you know, uh -huh. they actually really changed those job descriptions. People worked at the top of the license. And then when you, you talk with them, they've got a many, many additional more ideas that they're saying, well, you know, if we did that, we can then move our, the, and it just, it just, it just grows. And so you go back uh, six months later and they're telling you how this is sustainable, which is something I think we underestimate that if you change to this approach of thinking empathetically 
and iterating in, in, uh, with innovation and, and prototypes, you are then giving meaning to the workforce that is sustainable. And that's where the leader's job, I think, really is. And that does bring us to leadership. So your first tool you really apply is design thinking practices. And then you also use something you call positive change leadership to help with these organizational transformations. Tell us about that. Okay. So, Chad, if you don't mind, let me actually say you do it both at the same time. Okay. It's not sequential. You do it both mm-hmm. at the same time. And the idea of addressing the leadership is fundamentally with the definition that everybody in the organization at one time or another is leading other people. And every time in there, everybody in the organization is a follower at one time or the other. And that's an important distinction. Um, and I would also like to say that as I taught leadership at Tulane University, I always began the course uh, every semester with um, getting the students to go to Amazon uh, and to do books and type in the word leadership. So when I started doing this, I would get 50,000 hits, okay? And then it was 70,000. Now, I just want you to know this morning, um, I typed in under books, not all products, just books, the word leadership. I got 190,000. This is a pretty big area for books, isn't it? (laughs) And ours is actually one of those. So the interesting part, is is that I think we write more about stuff we really don't understand. So the reason I'm bringing this up is I don't want people to think that this is positive change leadership with the title of a book that you need to try this brand of leadership. It's not that at all. What it is is the idea that the leaders that we're interested in are making change towards a positive business. And so the work that we did Um, based in lots of different exemplars, began asking the question, what is a wise leader? Now, people don't like the word wise because they don't know how to define it, and it also usually means you're old. Well, it turns out, it turns out that wisdom has a very specific definition, and it's the cycle that matches design thinking. It begins with a level of really a perception a cognition of the other. And then within this wise leader, there is reflection as to what that means. And then that leads to compassion. So the strength of this capacity for wisdom can be broken down into terms that you would say, well, these are touchy-feeling. Well, it turns out in positive psychology, this stuff is measurable. You can actually have indices that measure hope, optimism, resilience, self-efficacy in the organization, the PSYCAP index. So one of the things that we're talking about is is that the quality of the individual, and again, applied to everybody, is that they have an understanding of meaning, what they're doing. They have an understanding of reflection. They reflect as to what's going on. What are they learning? How do they see it? They forgive, and they're humble. They have trust relationships. They're connected. They have a general positive attitude. And the thing that I really like is, is that they understand complexity. And this is where your product managers have a real leg up because they understand the two competing ideas. Why a department might, as you mentioned earlier, why a department might do this, even though the long-term goal is this and it might be in conflict. You understand that. And that really leads to this understanding of compassion. 
the ability to walk in another person's shoes, the ability to be empathetic as to where they are, and to really look for opportunities to create their ability to thrive and prosper. So what we've been doing is we've been doing interviews of um, leaders who have demonstrated these kind of qualities. And what's really impressive um, about uh, those leaders is, is that very, very simple concepts in terms of their approach. Um, one of the things that um, one leader said is, when I'm in a meeting, I'll stop everybody and I'll say, um, why are we talking about this? I thought we were talking about the care of the patient or the care of the customer. And they bring them back to that, to that grounded way. Another one says, I look at things through anthropologist's eyes, meaning that I want to understand the deeper things at play, the deeper cultural issues that are at play. And in doing that, it allows me to walk in their shoes, understand where they are. And then once I meet them where they are, I then help move them forward in the process. And that's very powerful. And just a quick story. Um, in years past, we had um, a public system of care in the South came for about a million of underinsured or uninsured people in eight facilities, including the entire continuum of care. And we began a process of really allowing the meaning and this kind of wise leadership to unfold from the senior level. What was amazing is, is that you went from in a civil service environment, you went to motivated individuals who were going above and beyond. And in the process of doing that, there was joy at work. And when you look clinically at their outcomes, their diabetic patients didn't use the emergency room near as much. Their hypertensive patients had better control. An under-resourced organization, by having the compassion for the workforce, created benchmarks that were national standards. And that becomes very powerful. So when you talk about positive change leadership, and you mention the word wise, and people say, oh, that's too touchy-feely, I can't get there. The nice part is, is that the science and the measurement systems now have moved far enough. And the evidence is that these tools, we call them positive change technologies, that are actually learning interventions that a wise leader can bring to the organization. A simple, simple thing like mapping relationships in a team. It's a wonderful exercise, and people then begin to say, "Oh, I didn't know they were part of this team. I didn't. I know. I don't know what they do." And and it really is the kind of thing to learn empathetically, meet the followers where they are, and help them move along. So it sounds academic, and it sounds touchy feely. Actually, is it's evidence based. There are measures, and it works. <laughs> How's that for a long winded answer? Well, the thing I was thinking about as you went through that was a couple aspects. I, I want to get back to the touchy feeling in just a moment. First was those qualities that you shared, hope and optimism and increasing trust and the ability to, for there to be forgiveness as part of the culture. All those fit really well to enabling innovation also, where we need people that First. we can collaborate, we can share insights without fear of our, our knowledge being somehow stolen, right? And, you know, who are we giving credit to and that sort of thing? We can break down some of those barriers that are natural. In the beginning of our conversation, you talked about the, the, you know, the immune system of the organization that just prevents that stuff from happening. 
So all those characteristics you talked about that help make the organization better also would be the same ones that would help drive innovation and make innovation possible. You're, you're totally on target. So when you think of this value model of culture, so there is four dimensions, right? So culture can be very controlling, mm-hmm. can be very market driven, can be very relational, or it can be very innovative. And an organization shouldn't be just one box. You need to be a little bit of all of them at the right time in the right place. Mm-hmm. Problem is, is that much of our industry we have, and I'm going to be really in trouble here. Um, some of the leaders we have are very narcissistic. And they want to run the organization so that they and the board like what they're doing. The shareholders are happy and it's all in service of them. That sort of controlling organization blocks the creativity and the innovation. Mm -hmm. So you actually want to be able to balance those four dimensions in terms of the organization to move forward. And I think when we talk about what you just said in these touchy feely sort of things, that's the new paradigm for a positive organization. And all the data suggests that it's profitable and people are happy and the workforce is happy. And there's this thing called joy at work. Right. So on the touchy-feely side, my background is engineering. I tend to be really high task focused. And in general, I tend to be low relationship focused. And thankfully, over my career, I've been able to recognize you need a balance of both, right? But from the kind of my background as an engineer, I, I don't move easily into touchy-feely things. But why would anyone not want to work in an organization that was characterized like this? Right? Do I want to go to an organization where we're autonomous and during the day I just have to crank out my tax, taxed, crank out my task? Or during the day I get to interact with people I enjoy. I'm in a work environment that I look forward to being a part of. We're helping customers in a meaningful way. You know, these aspects that make my life more satisfying too. So given the choice, I would certainly opt for the touchy-feely dimensions. And I also think that you'll see in the younger millennial age group, they they are looking for meaning at work. Absolutely. They are looking for things that do bring that that um, that joy that I'm contributing, I'm doing something important, I'm doing something worthwhile. So I it it it, it really does it really does fit. You know, there's certainly some of those generational shifts. One is, you know, for you and I, we were probably more a part of that generation where we would ask, what do we need to do, right? When we're told about something coming up, well, what do we need to do? Whereas a millennial person is more likely to respond, well, why do we need to do that? Exactly. They, want, they want the meaning as part of, of their work. Um, and I would want that too. So even though I'm not a millennial anymore, unfortunately, I mean, I never was, but I'm not in that age. <laughs> so... Okay, and and you shared a helpful example there of uh, an organization that went through a transformation and really made a positive difference in how the employees were engaged and then outcomes and the customers they actually served. And I appreciate sharing that too. So this has tangible benefits for everyone involved. And as listeners know, I love innovation quotes, and I always ask guests for one, and I ask you to bring one too. Can you share the one you have and why you chose that one? So I'm I'm going to make sure that I um, uh, quote it directly here, um, but it's the idea that science is humankind's greatest achievement, and that its greatest virtue is compassion. Hmm. And the idea behind that is is that 
we should not be divorcing those two spheres, not only of our being, of our thinking, but the idea that the science that we make, whether it's technology, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's any sort of, of um, application to this idea that, you know, we're, we're all in this together. And the, the newsflash is no, nobody gets out of this alive. Right. So it probably behooves us to actually have that level of compassion and that, that level of empathy, that level of relationships, and to find that joy in doing these endeavors. And uh, as I mentioned, Chad, earlier, that quote is actually from one of my sons. Um, and I got permission so that I could use it. <laughs> um, but I, I think that that is a very um, important idea that, the science, the technology, as you said earlier, is not divorced from the human experience mm -hmm. and from the relationships we have with each other and the, the meaning of our work, the joy in our work, and the quality of our life. And so I think what we're doing is now we're seeing transformation in organizations happens because you take the science, whether it's business science, improvement science, specific science for the industry, um, whether it's it's any of those, and we add the behavioral sciences, and we come up with this human component that is related to these things that we've been talking about, this forgiveness, humility, connectedness, um, we make positive change. Yeah, and compassion is a good way to characterize all those things. And it, it ties in well to the triple bottom line that we talked about, that there's more than just profit to focus on to creating a positive business, a positive organization. So I appreciate your son coming up with that quote, creating that for us, and for you for sharing it with us. And help listeners know how they can find out. You mentioned a book that I want to know more about and also a website where they can find out more about the work that you do and be able to connect with you. Sure, sure. Um, you know, um, my training is that usually don't put websites uh, with your name, but that's exactly what it is. It's G-E-N-E-B-E-Y-T dot com. And uh, there's links on there. The, the book is, is specific in terms of, of healthcare, um, and uh, its uh, Amazon link is also on there. And the second book we're working on has, has the um, self-aggrandizing title of being a design manual. Um, yeah. And we're using that in a very specific way because we're trying to shake up um, this whole idea of creating a link between design thinking and positive leadership, positive change leadership as really uh, design training solutions to create this aim, this, uh, I want to call it the missing aim, creation of a positive business where there's human flourishing and, and uh, the welfare of the human capital. And what is the title of the book that's out right now? You said it was specific for... For health. It's um, uh, Wisdom, Leadership, uh, in Academic Health Science Centers, Making Positive Change. Okay, very good. And the new one coming out, what's the, what do you expect as a well, publication? Uh, <laughs> well, That's the, always a hard question. <laughs> the, well, I, I have a good answer. Um, there was an old commercial years ago where um, they would say, we will sell no wine before it's time. Mm. <laughs> and so we're, we're, in the pro we're doing the research, we're doing interviews of CEOs, we're doing interviews of frontline workers, and we're trying to make this not a management how-to book, but an engaging story. Uh, that that we can then share in an appreciative way uh, the story of of what might be useful for people to think about. 
And so um, we, we can go from there. Okay. And I'm sure you will have information on that when it is out on your website. And so again, the website was G-E-N-E, Gene, B-E-Y-T dot com. Right. Excellent. Gene, I appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing the information with the Everyday Innovators. And it's been my pleasure. And thank you. Thanks for listening. Please tell other product managers and innovators about this podcast. I make that easy. Just go to the show notes for the summary of the discussion with Gene, and you'll find links at the top of the page to share it on your favorite social media sites. From the same place, you'll also find the Product Mastery Roadmap that shows you how to beat the competition. All that and more is at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 136. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.